Hello to all you Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast. This is week number seven that we're in. And this week, our focus will be on Leviticus chapters 22 through Numbers chapter 7. And last week, you started the book of Leviticus, and I know the reading might be a little laborious as you go through those first 21 chapters of Leviticus, but I pray that you've made it through. I pray that you've been encouraged by looking at the bigger picture and not getting bogged down in some of the um, some of the details, really. And so this week, we're going to focus on Leviticus 22 through Numbers chapter 7. And so we mentioned last week that chapters 21 and now this week, chapters 22, our focus was on the priests. And they were held to a higher standard than the people because of their privileged relationship with God. And they had higher positions in leadership, and so some of the commands and instructions that God gave to them were different, and some would say even more difficult because of their responsibility. Now, as we move into chapter 23, we must remember that just as God considered the people, priests, and sacrifices to be set apart to Him, He also required certain days and times of the year to be set apart in a similar fashion. And so in this chapter, in 23, we find the principle of the Sabbath, uh, and its main purpose was to provide rest for God's people. Now, while we don't observe the Sabbath in the same exact way that ancient Israel did in the Old Testament, nonetheless, the principle of a day of rest is still at the heart of this command. Now, in chapter 23, we find seven celebrations that were to be a part of Israel's annual life. And so the chapter is divided up into spring festivals and fall festivals. The first here being the Passover. It was the most important of all the festivals, marking the start of the year and reminding Israel of God's deliverance from Egypt. The word Passover is reminiscent of when the Israelites put blood on their doorposts and the death angel, quote, passed over them. So that's the actual significance of the word Passover. It's related to that actual event. A second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began the day after Passover. And this feast reminded the believing Israelite that he needed to live a clean life since God had redeemed him by the blood of the Passover lamb. A third feast was called the Feast of First Fruits, which included the presentation of first fruits during the spring harvest in the Promised Land. And so this feast celebrated God's goodness and reminded the people to give God the best portion of what he had given them, not to give him the leftovers, but to give him the best. And the last spring celebration or festival was called Pentecost, also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And this feast fell 50 days after Passover. And it was a festival of thanksgiving that lasted for one day, much like we celebrate one day of thanksgiving every November. This feast was primarily a time of appreciation for God's present provision and care for them. Now, if you know your New Testament well, then you know that in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles at the Feast of Pentecost, or at the day of Pentecost. Remember, Christ promised to leave the Holy Spirit with the apostles and with the early believers when he ascended to heaven. And so when a person today believes in Jesus, he or she receives the Holy Spirit who then indwells them. Now, if Pentecost is thanking God for his provision, 
then we today can thank God for providing us the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And that's how those two feasts, same feast really, but two different times, are connected. Now, while those four celebrations took place in the springtime, three more occurred in the fall. They were, first, the Feast of Trumpets, then the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, all three of these events occurred in the seventh month, which means that the seventh month was a rather busy month and, quite in fact, a spiritually significant month for Israel. The first one was the Feast of Trumpets, and it was celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. The purpose was to call the people to a time of preparation, a time of repentance for the next two feasts that were coming. And so the next feast, not really necessarily we call it a feast, but we call it the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, was the next one. And it happens on the 10th day of the 7th month. Now we've already gone over the Day of Atonement as it was described in Leviticus 16. This day was a fast day rather than a feast day, a day when the nation's sins were atoned for. And the last feast here was the Feast of Tabernacles, and it occurred on the 15th day of that seventh month. So the people built booths out of branches and lived under these for the duration of this eight-day festival. And it was a reminder of their life in the wilderness, and the feast was primarily a time of joy since God had just provided atonement through the Day of Atonement. Now, we must remember that the Israelites were not only to offer themselves to God on special days of the year, but they were to worship and serve Him every day of the year. And we would think the same way today. We're not just to offer ourselves to God on special days like Christmas and Easter and other special religious holidays, but we are to offer our worship and offer our sacrifices to God every day. And that's what chapter 24 is speaking about, at least the first part of it, the daily refueling and burning of the lamps and the uninterrupted presentation of the bread on the table of Shobed represents the daily sanctification of the people. You know, in the same way, we need to set ourselves apart to God every single day. Now, the last half of chapter 24 deals with an incident of someone who blasphemed the name of God when the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father blasphemed the name of the Lord, the Lord demanded death by stoning as punishment. And the rest of the chapter lays down the principle of God's justice, teaching us that the punishment should fit the crime. It was just a small incident there in this long list of celebrations, because in chapter 25, there's another celebration that happens, and it's called the Sabbath year and the year of Jubilee. So, what happens is that every seven years, God ordered the people to let the land rest. And so by resting, the land's strength and productivity increased. I mean, today, modern farmers in the agricultural industry support the practice of allowing the land to lie fallow periodically so it can be rejuvenated and so it can be replenished. Um, now, in case you're wondering, if crops happen to grow up during the Sabbath year, what were they supposed to do? God told them not to harvest them, and he permitted um, people who were slaves, hired individuals, foreign residents, cattle, and animals to freely eat from those. So that was the Sabbath 
year, and this is called, the next one is called the year of Jubilee. And so the year of Jubilee was every 50th year. And so during this 50th year, the land was to be at rest, and all the land that had been sold was to be returned to its original owner. This was a way of keeping the land perpetually within the original tribe that owned it. Now, as an interesting side note, the motto on the Liberty Bell that hangs in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia is the same phrase that we find in Leviticus 25, verse 10. Interesting. Now, America doesn't practice the year of Jubilee, but it's interesting where you might come across Scripture, especially a reference to Leviticus of all of all books, on the Liberty Bell of all places. Kind of an interesting thing. Now, as chapter 26 is a chapter of blessings and cursings. The blessings and cursings in Exodus 32 deal specifically with the conquest of the promised land, but the blessings and cursings in this chapter in 26 deal with Israel once she is settled in the land and beyond. In fact, this chapter is absolutely crucial to understanding God's future dealings with Israel and the message of the prophets. So if you really want to understand what the prophets preached to the people and why they preached it, earmark this chapter and return back to it and read it. Now when we get to the prophets, we'll talk more about their purpose. But at this point, you need to understand that prophets were primarily preachers of what God had already said rather than predictors of future events. The message that the prophets preached to the people often came from this chapter, and that's why this chapter is such a foundational one. Now, internally, this chapter is divided up into blessings and cursings. Blessings are listed first, and these are gifts, some enrichment of life or some enablement of prosperity that comes from God. A blessing can either be physical, like wealth, success, or children, but they also may, may be spiritual as well, like grace and peace with God or communion with God. And the last half of chapter 26 turns to the threat of curses for disobedience. The curses have five different stages as you look at them in chapter 26. Sickness and defeat in battle, that's the first one. The second one is drought and famine. The third one is overrun by wild beasts. The fourth one is war and siege. And the fifth one is total destruction and exile with cannibalism. Yeah, that's right. It says that. Of course, this almost reads like a history of Israel because they eventually go into exile and are expelled from the land for a period of time. Well, that brings us to the last chapter, and Moses closes out the book of Leviticus by exhorting Israel to present some dedicatory offerings to the Lord. These were not done to gain favor with God, but they were done for expression of gratitude and commitment to Him for all of His gracious provisions. Oftentimes, we refer to these as vows, and we'll come across that word again later on in Scripture, vows. But even voluntary offerings must follow a protocol. And this chapter provides those necessary guidelines. So that finishes the book of Leviticus, and now we go right into the book of Numbers. And this week, as we continue the podcast, we'll cover through chapter 7 of the book of Numbers. It's our customary practice to take a few minutes and highlight some of the important parts to understanding the book of Numbers as a whole. So let's do that. First, the key word to Numbers would be wandering, because it's in the book of Numbers that the people wander in the wilderness for 40 years. 
Second, chapter 14 is really the key chapter to the book of Numbers because it references Israel's unbelief of being able to conquer the promised land. That unbelief was due to the negative report brought back by those ten spies. Now, this unbelief at Kadesh Barnea is actually a key part to several chapters in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. The author to Hebrews uses these this incident in the book of Numbers is a key foundation to what he's going to talk about in that book. So when we get to Hebrews, we'll reference back here to Kadesh Barnea as well. Third, the name of the book reflects the fact that there were two times in the book when a census of Israel was taken. The people were numbered. And these two incidences of numbering the people are that key to really dividing the book and to understanding the book. Because one numbering deals with one generation, and another numbering deals with the new generation that would go into the Lamb. Fourth, although rebellion is a big part of what happened in the book, as the people wandered for 40 years, the faithfulness of God as provider and sustainer for those 40 years is not to be overlooked. His patience and long-suffering are key attributes that come to the forefront in this book. Attributes which I am sure both you and I are thankful for because how many times do we deserve punishment and judgment, but instead he extends grace and mercy. And one final part of understanding numbers is that practically speaking, this book transformed an oppressed people into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So it's a very transformational book, we might say, in taking the people from where they were and taking them or making them into who they needed to be. In the larger perspective of Numbers, chapters 1 through 12, take the Israelites from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea. And after spending some time, about a year at Sinai, the nation of Israel had their marching orders to conquer the promised land. And since Israel was going to have to fight against the nations in Canaan, it was necessary to find out how many fighting men were available. And so fighting men, we're told in chapter 1 here, were were to be at least 20 years old and capable of fighting. The total number of fighting men listed in Numbers chapter 1 is 603,550. And so all the tribes were counted in that number except for the tribe of Levi. Because the Levites were not allowed to go to war because it was this tribe that was selected by God to be those special people who would care for the tabernacle and assist in the worship of the Lord. Their military duty, so to speak, if we can term it that way, was to protect and guard the tabernacle as well as transport it from place to place. As you move into chapter 2, of the book of Numbers, chapter 2 describes the arrangement of the tribes. The 12 tribes, excluding the Levites, camped in groups of three tribes on each side, the north, the south, the west, east of the tabernacle. This formed an outer circle around the tabernacle. And then closer in, like an inner circle, were the Levites, who camped around the tabernacle on all four sides. And they were closer to the sanctuary than any other tribe. And this arrangement placed God in the center of the camp geographically as well as spiritually. And so the organization of the tribes also represents the fact that barriers existed between a holy God and fallible Israel, with the priests being the mediators. Now there are lots of maps and illustrations on the internet that you can search uh, 
helper to help you better visualize this arrangement of the tribes around the tabernacle. Just like chapters 1 and 2 of Numbers talk about the order of the people and the tribe for marching, chapters 3 and 4 talk about the order of ministry. And so the priests and the Levites were two different classes of ministers. And sometimes these two groups are lumped into one, but they have different responsibilities. The Levites ministered to the priests mainly in the outward elements of the worship service, while the priests performed the ceremonial exercises of the worship itself, like sacrificing um, the offerings of the people. In chapter 3 and 4, only the first four verses of this larger section refer to the priests exclusively. Everything else deals with the Levites. Now remember, the priesthood belonged only to the descendants of Aaron, and only his descendants could function as priests. However, Aaron was a Levite, so we can say that not every Levite was a priest, but if you were a priest descended from Aaron, then you were a Levite. And the text tells us as well that the four sons of Aaron are identified by name, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And the rest of chapter 3 deals specifically with the general service of the Levites and numbering them. And towards the end of chapter 3, the Levites are redeemed instead of the firstborn sons. Now this is interesting because if you remember back in Exodus, at the beginning of Israel's march out of Egypt, God told the Israelites that every firstborn son was to be his, because he protected all of Israel's firstborn sons by means of the blood on the doorposts. That very night the death angel passed over their houses, the Lord protected them. So listen to what Numbers chapter 3 verse 11 says about this redeeming of the firstborn. And I'm reading from NLT. And the Lord said to Moses, look, I have chosen the Levites from among the Israelites to serve as substitutes for all the firstborn sons of the people of Israel. The Levites belong to me, for all the firstborn males are mine. On the day I struck down all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, I set apart for myself all all the firstborn in Israel, both of people and of animals. They are mine. I am the Lord. And so that teaches us that instead of the Lord taking all the firstborn sons of Israel and dedicating them to himself or his service, he instead takes the tribe of Levi, and they are to be the substitute. Now, in chapter 4, each of Levi's three sons are named Kohath, Gershom, and Merari, and they're given specific responsibilities. Kohath and his sons were to have charge of the primary objects. These were the main pieces of furniture of the tabernacle, such as the ark, the table of showbread, the candlestick, the altar of incense, etc., The Gershomites were to take care of the large and heavy tabernacle, the tent, the curtains, the coverings, the screenings, the hangings, etc. And that third son of Levi, um, Merari, they were to take care of the smaller things like boards, pillars, sockets, pins, etc. And it's likely that these three sons and their families not only transported these items, but also took part in their upkeep or their maintenance. And so at the end of chapter 4, we find that there are a total of 8,580 Levites who are aged 30 to 80, excuse me, 30 to 50, that are charged with these specific tasks. Now, I know we're getting short on our time, but stay with me here, and let's finish this little bit of numbers. In chapter 1, the instruction 
was to count the warriors. In chapter 2, it was the arrangement of the tribes. In chapters 3 and 4, it was take care of the tabernacle. Now in chapter 5 and 6, the directions were aimed more at individuals within the camp, ensuring that the camp is spiritually ready to enter the promised land. So in chapter 5, the focus is on keeping the camp clean. Physical impurities, moral offenses, domestic tensions, all three of these matters had to be dealt with in order to keep the camp clean, both physically and spiritually. And then you move into chapter 6, and the focus still remains on the individual, but in this unique section, it's about voluntary service. You know, the priests and the Levites were conscripts, what we might call individuals who were drafted into service. But it's refreshing to read in this passage in number 6, a passage that makes room for volunteers. Any man or woman who wished to offer time and service to God for whatever purpose they determined, they could do that. And we know this is a vow, and specifically here, it's called a Nazarite vow. And this vow came to have a special importance in the spiritual life of God's people. This vow, if you read through the chapter, had six different features to it. It was special, it was voluntary, it was personal, it was public, costly, and lastly, it was temporary. And so when a man or woman wanted to set themselves apart for a time in order to give special attention to knowing God and serving God, they entered into a Nazarite vow. Now today, this vow takes the form of those who practice fasting, we might say. Although this vow was much more involved than fast today, and it's not a one-for-one comparison, there are similarities between the two. Now, chapter 7 is the second longest chapter in the Bible. Numbers chapter 7 we're talking about here. It's unique because it looks backward to that very special day when the tabernacle was completed and consecrated for service. If we wanted to read this chapter chronologically, we would situate this chapter between Exodus 40 and Leviticus 1, so right between those two Bible books. As you read through this chapter, first, the tribes presented six wagons and twelve oxen to carry the materials of the tabernacle. The Gershonites received two wagons, the Merarites received four, and the Kohathites didn't need any wagons since they carried the furniture of the tabernacle with poles on their shoulders. And the rest of chapter 7 records the gifts um, of the Israelites spread over a time period of 12 days, one per day, because it took a whole day to receive and sacrifice what each tribe presented. Now, what's unique is that each tribe offered exactly the same gifts. No tribe was superior or inferior to the others in this respect. And so each had equal privilege and responsibility before God to worship and serve Him. Much like each believer today, is represented the same before a holy God. God is not a respecter of persons. Now, I know that was quick in that last part, but we needed to get through Numbers chapter 7, and we got through Numbers chapter 7. And that's as far as we need to go today, because next week we'll pick up with Numbers chapter 8 and go through Numbers chapter 27. Don't forget, email me with any questions you might have at BibleReadingLMBC.org. And I will talk with you guys next week.